So just really quick, um, I, I, I promised our youth guy over here I would cut us off exactly at um, no later than 8.30, but I'm planning on aiming for 8.15. Okay, we're, we're going to try and cover about 300 years of, well, 250 years of church history in an hour and 15 minutes, okay? Uh, so the, the history of the church, or God's work um, in the church, I hope by, by the time uh, we finish, and we're just, in these four weeks, we're covering basically a thousand years, because um, you cannot cover 2,000 years of church history um, in four sessions. So we're going to hit the turn of the millennium and actually the split between the West Church, which is the Roman Catholic Church, and the Orthodox Church, which happened roughly um, in the middle of the, um, the turn of the millennium. Okay, so we're, that's what we're planning on doing, and we're just covering the first 250 or so, 240 this, this, uh, this evening. So the study of uh, our, our history is the study of our, our family. It's the study of, of God's grace at work. Um, we are going to learn lessons of, from their mistakes. At the same time, I hope that you will see that we are deeply indebted to those who went before us. Uh, like it or not, it's not just me and Paul, it's me and you learning Paul through a whole bunch of other voices and teachers that have lived for hundreds of years. So um, we, we are deeply indebted to them. So I, I pray that you will be grateful um, as we look at this. I, I also hope that it will, um, our study time together will affirm your faith. Um, you're going to see that there has been a, a solid truth believed from the very beginning that was never questioned. And I want you to be um, affirmed in your faith in the scripture and in what God has done. And, um, and, and lastly, um, just there, there's a lot of popular myths out there about the church, the New Testament, um, about the Christian faith that are just that popular myths. And I, I hope to dispel them through real history. Um, one example of that myth is, and I've heard this from time to time, is that um, the divinity of Jesus was something that was decided by Constantine in the 4th century. Um, so in other words, the church got together and decided, well, Jesus is God. And what I want you to see is that is absolutely untrue, okay? This is something that has been believed from the earliest time, okay? Uh, that's why I think history is important, because it helps to guard us against being um, misled by restructuring of history or um, recasting of, of history. So that's, that's what I'm hoping will happen tonight. Now, how I want to proceed is, listen, if you have a question at any time, I want you to ask, feel like you can ask it. At different points, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, stop and ask if you have any questions. The first part I'm going to tell you is, is a, it's a lot of facts about history that we're going to cover c- kind of quickly. But at the last part, probably the part that, that is the most um, maybe meaningful for your life today is the reflection part where we're going to reflect on what we just learned. And that's where we kind of pull back and say, okay, what, what did we learn from this? And that's, that's the part um, that we're going to conclude with. But if you don't pay attention to the first part, then the last part's not going to mean that much to you, okay? Okay. So with that said, um, I, I uh, thought I w- would start in this period of history that we're going to look at um, is one of the most remarkable because the church was like a toddler and um, the most vulnerable and new, on the run, under fire, under persecution. And uh, this is just a, to enter into this conversation, or this, uh, it's not really a conversation, but this lecture on church history, um, by way of the Bible. There are these two images in the book of Revelation. Um, if we need more chairs, Dean, Ron, somebody just grab some more chairs. Maybe we take just a second. Or you can sit right up here in front of me and I can spit on you. <laughs> Mike, he, uh, Mike, he wants you to turn up my mic. So Mike, turn up the mic a little bit. Okay, so there we go. Okay, the Book of Revelation. Two, two um, of the of the darkest images in the book um, are a beast, and another one is is uh, the prostitute or the harlot of chapter seventeen. And um, both of those images are meant to communicate a truth about how the enemy works. Um, the beast is, as we know, beasts to be something that tears apart. It rips, it shreds, it causes to bleed. Um, that's chapter 13 of Revelation. And then there's this harlot, a uh, prostitute, who deceives and seduces. 
And those are kind of, if you will, the two faces of the enemy and how the enemy attacks God's church. And it has continued to attack the church through the centuries. And you see it especially come to bear upon the early church. Of they are torn apart. And he does, that is the, the harlot, if, the, if you will, the satanic um, uh, schemes of the devil to undo the church within, that is seduce it to compromise itself. And as I look at the first uh, two and a half centuries of this um, of our church history, I, you see those two images uh, front and center, vivid, tearing apart the church. Okay, but the last part, and this is the the dominant theme I think in the Book of Revelation, and I just want us to keep these three things in mind in terms of understanding history. And someone's trying to call me. Hold on a second. Can't handle buzzing in my pocket. Um, is the lamb? Um, I'm not going to read the first two, but you can, you can read those as the lamb. Um, and they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even to death. Uh, it's amazing. Um, and you're going to see that, I think, come to, come to reality in the history we're about to look at. Okay? You're going to see death. You're going to see seduction. And you're going to see the triumph of God through the church. Okay? So... With that said, I'm going to tell you where we're going to go tonight. We're going to look at five. These are kind of the five things we're going to cover this evening. Um, The first part, we're going to look at the destruction of Jerusalem. That was a major event in the church, um, in church history. That is, if you will, the church was pushed out of the nest. Um, But out of the nest, and part two is into the fire. Um, The church had so many challenges, both from without and from within. And then that'll be second part. Third part, um, we're going to look at how the primary means that God used to both protect, preserve, and also to cause the church to progress. Those, those vital things that kept it from being torn apart. Um, fourth, and this will be really brief, I just want to show you how the church spread like wildfire, despite all of its challenges and oppression. And then finally, we're going to conclude with reflections. And I'm going to ask you at that time if you have any reflections um, on what this teaches you. Because there's, there's an endless number of reflections that might come out of it or conclusions. Okay? Are we clear up to this point where we're headed? We're going to look at these five things in one hour. Okay. Awesome. And if you can't hear me or you don't understand something, please ask. I am not by trade a historian. But I have... Um, over the years, I have read um, many of the church fathers for my own private devotion, and um, I don't know them all very well, but I know some of them. So if I don't know the answer to a question, I will write it down, and I will do my best to hunt down the answer for you, okay? So, out of the nest, the destruction of Jerusalem. If you read the book of Acts, and most of you have, you realize that in the, at least in the first Seven, well, if Jesus died in around 30 AD, um, for the first 40 years of the church's history, it revolved around Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem was like the, the hub of the wheel. Um, the councils were hit, held there that made decisions. The apostles were there. Jesus died there. So naturally, it was the center of Christianity. Um, Paul kept coming back to there and so forth. So if you can imagine, Christianity was very tied to Jerusalem. And, and the temple. They continued to meet in the temple for some time, okay? Um, and and as, as connected to Jerusalem, Christianity at first was viewed as a branch of Judaism, which afforded it some protection because if you know anything about the Jewish people, the Jewish people are very stubborn, and I don't mean that in a negative way. But the Romans had learned that we cannot uh, force these people to be pagans, um, you can't force Jewish people to be pagans, and their entire history um, shows that. They go to war with anybody who pretty much wants, wants them to violate their faith. So the, uh, the Romans passed this law that allowed Judaism to exist. And Christianity, for the first, I don't know, four, five, six decades, lived in the shadow or under the protection of this kind of Jewish um, protection. Uh, but as it became something separate, it would be something very different. It would... Um, no more, no, more, no more legal protection. So all that to say that Jerusalem was tied to, um, or excuse me, Christianity was tied to Jerusalem pre-70 AD. Okay? Very important. 
Now, let me back up in time and talk about the 60s. I was born in the 60s, so I don't know how crazy they were. That is 1960s. Some of you, maybe most of you, saw the 60s, and it was crazy, turbulent time. Well, it was turbulent time in Jesus' day, or not Jesus' day, New Testament day, as far as uh, uh, the 60s as well. Uh, a number of things happened in the 60s. There we go. Yeah, just turn me up just a tad bit. They're only doing three songs, so you won't have to bear with this. Uh, it was crazy in Rome. You had this, you had this, this, this crazy, semi-insane uh, person by the name of Nero. Most of you have, have heard the name Nero, um, who, for all practical purposes, set fire to his own city and then blamed it on the Christians, right? And that was uh, 64 A.D. Um, so, and that led to a whole, a whole bunch of, uh, and now we're going to go over this in just a second so you can actually see it, um, uh, persecution against Christians under the false accusation that they burned down Rome. But that's, that's happening in Rome. In Israel during the 60s, uh, it, was, it was a powder keg. The people of Israel um, were, were, were tired. They were, they were, they were done. And um, just waiting for the, the fuse to light. And... Um, uh, I think it was in the year, it was a 68 or 66. It was the year 66 uh, AD. Um, talk about terrorism. Um, it was in the city of Caesarea, and some of us visited that this last November. Um, in the city of Caesarea, a group of a Greek-speaking Gentiles um, attacked a bunch of Jewish people, killed them, and the Roman soldiers stood by and did nothing. That lit the powder keg. And a revolt, a rebellion started in, in, in Jerusalem, in Israel, that pretty much um, Rome had to come down hard and heavy. And so that sent um, Roman legions under the uh, generalship of a guy by the name of Vaspasian um, into Israel. And he started closing the noose on Jerusalem. About that time, 68 AD, um, Nero committed suicide. And Vaspasian, the renowned general, uh, was called back to Rome, and he took the place of Nero as, as the next emperor. And his son took over and went in and, you know the story, um, destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, pulling it to the ground. Fortunately, um, most of the Christians had left the, the city, um, and they did this because of Jesus' um, warnings that uh, Jerusalem would fall. Um, he says, or teaches that in Matthew chapter 24. As a result of that, um, if you will, and this is getting back to the Christian church, the Christian church lost its center. Its hub was gone. It was no longer a Jerusalem-centered religion. And so, if you will, it kind of forced it out of the nest. Um, there was no authoritative center any longer. And so the church really was like, like a teenager being sent off, right? That's why this event is, is important. Um, let's see, what did I miss here? covered that. I realize you're not filling in your blanks if I don't continue on here. So the result is that Christianity is on its own. Now, um, at this point, one of the remarkable things about the Christian faith is that it, it, it actually is not tied to a location, if you think about it. Judaism, like it or not, is tied to Jerusalem. Um, Islam is tied to Mecca. It's tied to a locale. But if you remember John chapter 4, Jesus said, um, the time is coming when you will worship God no longer in Jerusalem or here in Samaria. Um, but you will you'll worship him in spirit and truth. And you realize a transitioning is happen, happening in which the center of faith, the center of revelation and the center of authority is no longer tied to a location. It's tied to the person of Jesus. Which allows, really, Christianity, this is one of the remarkable things, to go anywhere in any country, any nation, because it's not centered on a location, it's centered on the person of Jesus, okay? And, and the destruction of Jerusalem really forced that out. So, can anyone think of, at this point, um, positives and negatives? If you followed, bottom line, it's like you lost your homeland, <laughs> the church. It lost its center, lost its uh, a hub. What would be the positives and negatives of that? If anybody is. Has made. Right. Kind of like the hand of God was saying, here's a very negative 
difficult thing, but it's going to free you in a way that's going to reach the nations. Yeah. What about the negative? Yeah. You definitely feel an identity crisis. Like, seriously, who do you look to? I mean, they could always ask the questions, well, what do the apostles think? And they go back and answer the question. Now there's no center. All right? There's, there's no center. And so, if you will, the church is very vulnerable at this time. Um, it has no pope to, to, to ask questions to, at least not in the first century or second century. Okay? So that would be the negative, vulnerable. It's like, again, like teenager, out of the house. I hope you're going to make it, right? Now, we're Christians, so we believe God is sovereign and the church is his, so we know they're going to make it. But that doesn't mean that the church isn't vulnerable, all right? So this was a decisive event um, of pushing the church out of the nest. Any questions with that? Okay. That was part one. Part two. Into the fire. (laughs) Out of the nest and into the fire. The church faced challenges outside and inside. Um, And in terms of outside, there were a whole series of persecutions that took place uh, against the church, especially after it lost its legal protection as being an offshoot of Judaism, once it became established as as its own religion, as, as it were. And I want to cover just some of those persecutions. So you see that the, um, the church is just being brutalized, okay, in different places um, and different times. And here I'm going to kind of go chronologically up to the third century, okay, and then we're going to kind of come back, just so you know where we're going. The first persecution I already talked about, Nero, um, who used the Christians as a scapegoat for him burning down the Roman city. Like I said, he was a, a, an insane person. Here is a, and you have this in your, your handout, um, but it's worth just, just reading to kind of feel um, what was happening. And this is, a, Tacitus was not a Christian by any means and actually hated Christians. So it's actually a reliable source when a non-Christian writes about what's happening to Christians. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs um, and perished or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination. Uh, When daylight had expired, Nero offered his gardens for the spectacles and was uh, exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people in the the dress of the charioteer or stood aloft on a car. Car is not an automobile. Um, Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion for it was not, as it seemed, for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. One of the themes that you'll find is that as the Christians died for their faith, there was a feeling of not only compassion, but the outsiders were impressed by the level of loyalty that these people had to Christ. And it actually, as one church father said, became the seed of the gospel. The blood of the martyrs uh, has become the seed of the gospel. They just see, wow, these people are willing to die for this. That was the, the, the first recorded. And I'm not going to go through all of them, um, but I'm going to look at just seven briefly. Um, the next major flare-up was under the emperor Domitian, who titled himself uh, God the Lord. He was the very first emperor to do this and it required people to call him the exalted one and all of these things. And as a side note, some think that... Um, when Revelation speaks of the one who speaks blasphemies, that perhaps there was an allusion to Domitian. Um, and from what I've read, he wasn't so much angry at Christians, he was angry at everybody and killed a lot of people. Well, I mean, it's, it started, obviously, with the book of Acts. That's where they first called them Christians. But um, Tacitus, actually, I don't have the quote here, but he refers to them as the followers of Crestus. Um, so they were associated not so much as Christian as much as the followers of Crestus or um, um, a new way, 
that was distinct from Judaism. So it just became clearer and clearer that was, this wasn't just a, a sect of Judaism like Sadducees, Pharisees, so forth. This was a completely different situation. So yeah, it was very early. So that was uh, flared up under Emperor Domitian. That was in the years. This is he ruled between 81 and 96. He didn't persecute them the whole time. During that time, Marcus Aurelius, in the year 161 to 180, that's when he reigned, and he too. Um, there were Christians killed, pri- uh, not primarily, but the ones we have recorded, were um, killed in France. Um, a bishop was killed in France. Christians were killed in France. Um, the next one, and again, we're going chronologically, Cerverus. He outlaws conversion to Christianity, and it's under his... I'm going to talk about one of the church fathers by the name of um, St. Origen. I don't know if you've heard of him, but his father was decapitated because of Cerverus, um, the emperor outlawing conversion. Um, and most of the persecution under Cerverus happened in North Africa um, and um, Egypt. Following service, Cerverus, excuse me. Now, this is now the first four here that I mentioned, and there was one that I missed called Trajan. I just didn't have a didn't want to put everybody who ever persecuted Christians. Um, this is the very first time where you have, if you will, an empire-wide systematic persecution of Christians. Uh, the others were more provincial here and there, um, but under Decius, this is, the, this is when it went big. Um, he was the first to implement, uh, uh, require everyone to offer a sacrifice to the Roman gods. This is a way of kind of weeding out the bad people. Uh, rumor has it that in Spain, you know, when they expelled the Jews, this is in the, what, 15th century, one of the things they required is them to eat ham, and if you didn't eat ham, you were a Jew, and should they expel you? Well, this is kind of the same thing, only it's much earlier. In order to weed out who the Christians are, it's like everybody has to offer a sacrifice to Caesar, and if you don't, then you're imprisoned. Um, and if they did, now here's the thing, and this is going to lead to a crisis in the church that I want you to think about. If they did offer, let's just say someone came to your house and said, listen, we need you to offer a sacrifice to Caesar. And if you do, we're going to give you a certificate that precludes you from having to do this ever again. You're, you're facing a choice as a Christian. If you don't, you go to prison. If you do, they write you a certificate. Some of the Christians folded and said, okay, and they offered their sacrifice to, to the Roman gods, and they received a certificate. Others bribed people for a certificate so they didn't have to go all the way and compromise. And then there were many who went to prison. And the question is, for the church, and something that caused a huge angst and division, what do you do with people who, who worshipped a false god, who cracked under pressure? Do you let them back into the church? Do you not let them back into the church? I'm going to come back to that question in a, in a second. But this was a, a massive... Um, persecution. Decius was followed by Valerian, 253 through 260, and then here's the final one, for sake of time. And he was the one, this is the one who's credited with, quote-unquote, the great persecution. The the harshest, most intense, um, up until that time. So you can see um, from this that the early period of the church up until about 311 was a time of constant not only harassment but imprisonment, pain, suffering, and death. That last one, Diocletian, he wasn't simply trying to suppress Christianity. It was his aim to eradicate it from Rome, utterly eradicate it from Rome. Okay. So if you get nothing else... I just want you to understand that the very, the, 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 right out of the nest, this Christianity that lost its center, that lost its hub, is now being slaughtered, oppressed, outlawed. No, that's a really good question. They were still protected under their um, their legal, um, like I said, Rome passed early on this kind of little, like the Jews were exempting from this because we're going to get constant rebellion. So they had legal protection. But as soon as Christians were um, viewed as something other than Jew- Jewish, then laws were passed. Um, so 
No, the Jewish people were not persecuted in this way. This is, this is if you will, part of our Holocaust. Other questions with this? Uh, good question. Um, where was it geographically, empire-wide? So this is where, like starting with Decius, this is where um, edicts were, um, were made empire-wide mandating certain things, like coming from the federal government, saying that, you know, Christians had to, or everyone had to, had to offer sacrifices to the Roman gods, everybody. So in that sense, it went everywhere. North Africa, the Mediterranean Rim, everywhere where the Roman Empire was. Is, now, now the question is, was it, was it um, intensely enforced in every place? It doesn't seem like it would be, um, but it certainly would be um, in a lot of other places. In the same way that the federal government, if they tried to do something today in the United States, some states would probably enforce it more rigorously than others, with the possible exception of Texas. So, <laughs> right. That, that's the, that just so you know, we're ramping up here. The first four that are, that are behind me, those were more, um, not necessarily, um, they didn't stretch through the entire empire in the same way that Decius Valerian and, and Diocletian did. Mike? No, it, like in, in the case of uh, Decius Valerian and Diocletian, they already saw Rome starting to um, weaken. And part of the strategy to um, forge Rome back to her former glory was to recapture its religion. And they saw Christianity as undermining that Roman um, religion ideology. And so, um, yes, they saw Christianity as a threat. And, of course, it was growing. It was a. It made its way into even the households of Caesar. So, it was. It was. It's like, to use a negative analogy, it was like watching a malignant tumor take over your, uh, your empire, but in a good way. Other questions with that? Okay. So I want you to picture again, toddler. Um, maybe teenagers better. A, a, a fledging Christianity, um, with no center, being persecuted through three centuries or two and a half centuries from without, and then you have, um, oh, I, I forgot to include this quote, and this, this also, this actually is from a church historian who lived at the time of, of Diocletian, and he writes about it, um, so he, he lived at the time, this is not somebody writing 400 years later, where he writes, um, and again, I read this just so we can feel it, because um, this is what happened to our, our family, um, But we must admire those also who suffered martyrdom in their native land, where thousands of men, women, and children despising the present life for the sake of the teaching of our Savior endured various deaths. Numberless other kinds of tortures, terrible even to hear of, were committed uh, to the flames. Some were drowned in the sea. Some offered their heads bravely to those who cut them off. Some died under their tortures, and others perished with hunger. And yet others were crucified, some according to the method commonly employed um, for malefactors or criminals. Um, others yet more cruelly, being nailed to the cross with their heads downward and being kept alive until they perished on the cross with hunger. It would be impossible to describe the outrages and tortures which martyrs in um, Thebius, that's Egypt, endured. Others being bound to the branches and trunks of trees perished, for they drew the stoutest branches together with machines and bound the limbs of the martyrs to them, and then allowing the branches to assume their natural position, they tore asunder instantly the limbs of those who were contrived. Um, This, all these things were done, not for a few days or a short time, but for a long series of years. Okay, so that's happening on the outside. Makes you want to be a Christian, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, And then there's troubles from from within. And um, some of them were theological and others were um, ecclesiological. That is um, more having to do with how the church understands itself. Now, this isn't all the theological struggles that um, happened in the church, but these are just some of the main ones. You read the New Testament, you realize that legalism was a huge problem of blending law and gospel and trying to cause people to be accepted by God by keeping of Mosaic law at the same time being saved by grace doesn't mix. And so a lot of the New Testament was written to counteract this 
compromise of the gospel, right? And we can understand point one. In the end of the first, excuse me, beginning of the first, second century, and up into the third, um, there was this, um, you've heard the word Gnostic or Gnosticism or Docetism, which is a, Docetism is a smaller version or a more particular version of Gnosticism, um, contaminated the church in the second century. And a lot of the church fathers took this on. Whereas the apostles took it on in the New Testament, the church fathers took it on at the end, the beginning of the first century and second century. Now, let me just pause and talk about Gnosticism, Docetism. Now I'm falling asleep. Uh, let me just comment on that for a second and just tell you, just so you kind of feel the threat to the church. Um, Gnosticism was a, was a Greek philosophy that people tried to merge with Christianity or the gospel. Um, the problem with Gnosticism coming out of Greek um, philosophy was it believed in a kind of dualism in that the spirit was good and matter or physical matter is evil, right? Spirit good, matter evil. So what I'm standing on, what I'm holding on to, your body, your lungs, your heart, part of the evil, but your spirit is good. And that made its way into the church. Now, start to think through the implications of what that does. Um, if, if matter's evil, then did Jesus really come as a physical, material person? And they concluded that as the Gnostics, no, he couldn't have. So he had to show up in spirit, not in body. If he didn't show up in body, then he really didn't bleed. If he didn't really didn't bleed, then he didn't really die physically. And the early church fathers recognized if, if you believe this, then you, you, you really destroy um, the cross, you destroy the humanity of Jesus, and you destroy our salvation. In addition to that, one particular vein of that, and by the way, that's docetism. It's, they believe that Jesus appeared as a man, but he wasn't a real man. Um, what's that? Docetism. And it just comes from that Greek word, I think it's pronounced, doseo, which means to appear. That he appeared as human, but he wasn't really human, because to be really human is to take on evil, right? Another brand of Gnosticism, or not brand, but a, a side effect of it, if, if, you're, if, if matter is evil and your physical body is evil, it really doesn't matter what you do with it. Which would lead to, you can, you can do whatever you want with it, which led to a very immoral um, license. Which, you know, is also a major problem, threat to the church. So here, there's a compromise of, of the person of Jesus and his physical manness that, and his death. And, and at the same time, now, now it's causing a moral compromise in the church. So that was a, that was a major attack um, against the church, and it, it kind of crept up from within. Questions with that? That's, that's going really fast over that. But you can see how it has a very real effect on that morality, um, understanding of who Christ was. And by the way, when, we, when, we do, when you read the Apostles' Creed and you hear, born of a Virgin Mary, they wrote that in there because they wanted to affirm that he was actually born a material person. They had, a, they had an axe to grind by putting that in, the, in, the, in the, um, the Apostles' Creed. They wanted to say he was really born, he really died, he went into the grave, and so forth. They're insisting on the material, physical Jesus being alive. Marcion, um, not going to go much into him, but he believed that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were very different. The God of the Old Testament was evil and angry. The God of the New Testament was good. And um, as a result... He clipped out the entire Old Testament. He created his own Bible. Um, and he was a very influential person. So he loved the books of Paul, and he loved the Gospel of Luke. And so he made his own Bible out of the Gospel of Luke and the, um, the writings of Paul. And he cut out, out of the writings of Paul, any allusion or uh, quote of the Old Testament. So they, to this day, you can look up the Marcion Canon. created his own Bible, and he had a following. And it had influence because the church fathers took him on too. So, all that to say, vulnerable church, hub has been taken away, uh, attacked from the outside, um, struggling on the inside, and then uh, one other um, internal, excuse me, did I miss something? I think I did. The ecclesiastical. I did, I missed something. One more, right? Here, there it is. Bubbling, 
So back to the question. Okay, so think about it, okay? You have all of these people who have... Um, if, you, if you've re- never read the book of Revelation, what happens when you wor- worship the beast? It's not good. In effect, when, um, in the early church, there were, there were some who, who held firm, and we'd love to say everybody did, but they didn't. Some held firm, and they paid for it. Like I said, others bribed people for the certificate that said that they had offered sacrifices when they really didn't. And then the third category was those who really did say, okay, save my family, save my skin. I'm going to go ahead and offer my, my um, sacrifice either to Caesar or to the gods of Rome. What do you do with those people as a church? What, what do you think? I, I know what our culture thinks. I, I probably know what you're going to say too. <laughs> What do you think? Would you let them back in? Would you be okay with it? Yeah, and there were people who said just that. I, okay, so it's easy to, to, to abstract it, but I'll tell you what, if, um, if I'm in a church and I've lost my children and my wife because I, I stayed true. And standing next to me in worship is the guy who said, okay, I'll offer, and there he is with his kids and his wife. No cost. Like, you realize this is, the, this is gonna be really hard. A real situation. Right? You're not sure if he's gonna tell people that you're right. The trust is gone. Well, that, like it or not, there's been divisions in the church from the beginning. Um, There was a group of people called the Novationists. They believed that they shouldn't be allowed in the church, followed by another group in the next century called the um, Donatists. Shouldn't shouldn't be a part. And they they became kind of their own little offshoot, saying, we're not going to allow those people in. Um, The Bishop of Rome... The Bishop of Carthage said, well, we need to take a mediating position and we need to have some kind of a way in which um, they can make their way back in um, to the fold. And, but all that to say, it created a massive pressure inside the church. Any questions with that or thoughts? Every generation has this issue, right? Okay, that was... Um, I think that was point... Ah, I think that was point two, point three. Um, not point three, but remember I said there were five places we're going. We looked at um, the fall of Jerusalem and its effect on the church. We looked at the into the fire and the out, out, external pressures, internal um, heresies. What is it that kept this thing from flying apart, this uh, church through these 250 years of, of, of vulnerability? And... Um, one of the main ones, I'm going to give you three, and this comes from, I'm borrowing this from Mark Nolk. I didn't get this from myself, but, but it's, uh, he argues it quite well. One is the scriptures. One of the things that Ju- Judaism bequeathed to uh, Christianity was the belief in the superiority of divine revelation. The Jewish people believed that God revealed himself, and that was, you know, all of life was to be ordered out of that, and that God revealed himself in a book. And the Christians um, were inherited that. And so they believed in the superiority of divine revelation and that that divine revelation um, was communicated through books. So we inherited that from the Jewish people. And the early Christians gathered together the writings of Paul and the Gospels. Now, you're probably going to have lots of questions about this part. Um, We can talk about it in the future and maybe a little bit now, but... um, I find it interesting that by the end of the first century, by the year 100 AD, uh, Paul's letters had been gathered together into a collection and were, 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 they existed in all the centers of Christianity as a collection. So they had the writings of Paul. They didn't materialize in the third century or the fourth century or fifth century. Nobody made them up. They were, they were, um, they were quoted um, by the early apostolic fathers at the end of the first century. Right, so we have this body of um, what they believed um, on a par with scripture um, teachings from the apostle Paul that they believed. 
And that's part of what held the church together, is that the bishops and the, the teachers would go back to this body of revelation, this body of, um, of uh, apostolic teaching, and they would, they would go back to it over and over and over again. It's what held them together. It's also interesting that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they circulated as a collection not later than much after the beginning of the first century. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John circulated together as a book. And the reason we know that is because, like I said, apostolic fathers who lived in the first century quote them. So these aren't gospels that were created in the third century or fourth century. They were written before the end of the first century, right early on. That tells us that um, what we have in the New Testament, and they viewed them and treated them like they did the Old Testament scriptures, is that what we have here in the New Testament um, is not a fabrication of the third or fourth century. It, is, it was from the beginning. And, uh, and it's what held the church together. Now, there were some other books, outlying books, that took a while for them to figure into the, to the whole canon of the 27 books of the New Testament. Um, but all of the main ones, the Gospels and um, the writings of Paul, were already in circulation. Questions with that? Yeah. Not that I've read. I, there might have been a, I'm sure there, like any, you know, large group of people, there's probably some dad who got, you know, upset that his family was being threatened and like Peter did, take out a sword and cut off somebody's ear. But I haven't read of any battles or um, uprisings um, in those era or those times. Um, they died. Um, the, that, that's, and that's the, the overarching, like, paintbrush is that, the Christians willingly went to their death. They didn't like it. Nobody would. Like the Jews in Germany. Like the Jews in Germany, yeah. Okay. Scriptures were pivotal. And again, just in terms of modern reflection, if they were as pivotal then at maintaining the faithfulness of the church in the first three centuries of its most vulnerable point, how much more, or are they just as pivotal today to remain true to the original writings of the New Testament? The second thing that held them together was like it or not, and I use bishops. Um, most of them were bishops, and when I, you think of bishop, you think of you know a bishop of, or a cardinal or some some highfalutin guy who exists in a big cathedral, but most of the churches, if not all the churches, were, were house churches. So to be a bishop didn't mean you, were, um, you had a big funny hat and a gown and a ring. These were the pastors of the church of the day, and many of them were house churches. Um, but they were the ones who shepherded and protected and taught and went back to the scriptures and tried to keep their people um, um, from going astray. And and they're the ones who, who really, second to the scriptures, helped pull it together um, and keep everything on track. Uh, leadership of the church. Uh, where the leadership wanders, then the church is going to wander too. So let me, let me just, um, th- I'm gonna, I have to go through this quickly, um, and we're, we're getting closer to the end here. Um, I want to just introduce you to some of these church fathers, okay? Some of their distinctives just so you get to maybe know a little bit of them. Um, one of the first ones, uh, Bishop Ignatius of Antioch, um, lived, we don't know exactly when he was born, sometime between 35 and 50 uh, AD, and died uh, sometime around 110, um, died being eaten by animals in Rome. Uh, he was a disciple of the Apostle John. He was the first one to use the word Catholic with regards to the church. And Catholic, just another word for universal, just in case... Um, but, but it would become what we know as Catholic. Um, he really was one who pushed the importance of bishop and, uh, and a monarchical bishop. In other words, one bishop who, who, if you will, governs an entire city of house churches. 
So from early on, we're getting this press for authority. And um, some view that as a really negative thing. I, in all honesty, I think he was just trying to protect the church and provide some controls. Like, we need to have somebody in charge. Um, as I said, he was devoured by beasts in Rome. And um, he wrote clearly about the divinity of Jesus. And I included a little segment of one of the excerpts of his epistle in the back page. And before next time, I want you to just read it. It's just a paragraph. And I want you to just look for the divinity of who, who he thinks Jesus is. So you can just cement in your own head, wow, so the divinity of Jesus was not something that Constantine created. Okay? So you can read it for yourself. You see it on the back page? Yeah. Okay. Um, Bishop Polycarp of Smyrna, if you ever have a chance, there's a, the, the, the church at Smyrna wrote a letter describing his death. He's an 86-year-old man who, was die, who died by fire, and when the fire didn't kill him, they stabbed him. Um, he, too, was a disciple of the Apostle John. He was a writer and burned to death. Note, and I want, one of the things I want you to notice is these people minister in different places uh, Antioch is in modern-day Turkey, um, although Syria contends that it's theirs. Um, Polycarp in Smyrna, which is modern-day Turkey. Um, Justin Martyr largely operated in Rome, but he was a philosopher writer. He came to Christ in part due to, um, to seeing martyrs suffering. You can kind of see that when Christians stand up and willing to suffer for what they believe, that it softens the heart of those who are looking on. Uh, he was the first to write that Jesus was born in a cave in Bethlehem, by the way. Um, and look at when he, was, he lived. Um, he lived from 100 to 165. So very early on, um, he was the one who, cont- who, who said that Jesus was born in the cave over which the Church of the Nativity now sits. Um, he was an apologist who defended Christianity against the false charges and writings, or excuse me, false charges. Christians were slandered in the early part of the... Um, church history. They were considered or called cannibals because they drank the blood of Jesus. And they were called atheists because they didn't offer um, sacrifices to the gods. And those were used as uh, um, instruments of persecution. And he, at the end of the day, was executed too. First three there, um, killed. Bishop, Irenaeus of Lyons. Uh, this is in France. Um, he was a student of Polycarp. Um, you see how all this is connected together. He wrote against Gnosticism. His book is called Against Heresies. And um, his writings cite the Bible as a whole. He, he treats New Testament passages just as authoritative as Old Testament passages. So already we see that he understands New Testament is on a par, equal with the Old Testament. Um, and again, when, did, when was he born? 130 to 200? This is really, really early on. Let me get through these and then I'll ask for questions. There's only two more. Uh, Tertullian of Carthage. This is in, on the north coast of Africa, modern-day Tunisia. Um, He was a theologian and writer, um, extensive writer. He was the first one to use the words persona and trinity. So our doctrine of the trinity, that word at least, not necessarily, well, doctrine too at some level, um, he's the one who who gave us those words. Those aren't in the New Testament, but they go back pretty early. They're trying to put together how do we believe in Jesus as God, and at the same time, there's only one God, and there's God the Father and so forth. Um, he wrote against Marcion. He was, he was trying to help the church defend against this guy who wanted to cut out the Old Testament. Um, and he advocated the full humanity and divinity of Jesus in one person. Again, this is, uh, this is um, the second century. And he quoted from all but a few of the New Testament books. And then one final one, and then I'm going to just make a, 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 a realistic comment about these guys. The last one, Origen of Alexandria, this is in modern-day Egypt, 185 to 254. He was a scholar, not a bishop, at least as far as I know. Um, his father was beheaded under service. We talked about that earlier. He was tortured and imprisoned during the Decian uh, uh, persecution. He wrote against heresies. He's, he wrote the very first systematic theology, and he was a zealous ascetic. That's the denial of, of normal physical pleasures and so forth. So these guys are all over the map um, as far as geography, and um, they offered different things to the church and wrote in a way that tried to keep the church protected, preserved, growing, and that would secure her. 
There were a lot of others who ministered, but these are the, some of the main fathers. And if you ever have a chance just to read even something by each one of these guys, I encourage you to do it, especially the first three. Now, with that said, not all these guys were perfect. In fact, some of them were really uh, um, strange things about them. Um, all of them were orthodox, and yet at the same time, um, from a 21st century perspective, um, maybe outside the realm of normal. Or at least outside of the realm of Protestant normal. So Ignatius, as I said, he really believed in the superiority or um, the, um, the, the strong hierarchical authority of a bishop. Not all of them believe that. Um, I didn't find anything wrong with Polycarp. Uh, Justin Martyr um, quoted very loosely from the Bible, sometimes in ways that we wouldn't approve of. Um, Bishop Irenaeus, he was the one who first talked about apostolic succession, succession, which would later be turned into the succession of popes, although he was using it in a positive way to try and talk about apostolic teaching being the same, not necessarily that each, every generation has an apostle-like authority that can change or alter the truth. Um, Tertullian, he was the first recorded charismatic that we have. Um, that is to say, he, it, for some period of his life, followed a, a, a prophet, self-proclaimed prophet by the name of Montanus, who uh, believed the world was going to end. And so some people had a problem with Tertullian, and yet he wrote a lot of great stuff. Um, and then there's Origen. The aesthetic, he's kind of like, he kind of started the, his life kind of started the whole aesthetic um, monastic, at least the seeds of the monastic movement. Um, It is said that he self-castrated himself. Um, Again, supposed, I don't know that anybody checked, but... (laughs) He was one of those guys who believed in the, you know, the denial of certain things. And, and um, again, by, by 21st century standards, uh, definitely not normal. And yet he was the scholar of, uh, of the bunch um, and, and really did a lot to, to, to provide rules of interpretation for how to interpret the Bible and so forth. So none of these guys were perfect. Um, none of them fit um, what we would think of as um, 21st Protestant orthodoxy. And yet God used them in amazing ways to help ground the church during this very difficult time. So, scripture, bishops, or fathers, and the last is creeds, and I'm not going to go into this very very much, except to say that the ordinary people didn't have Bibles. And so how could, they, how could you crystallize in their minds what, what you believe? And that's where the recitation of creeds came from. And it seems that the earliest creeds were in the New Testament themselves. When it says that... Um, you know, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that that was one of the first creeds, Jesus is Lord. Um, another early creed is believed to be Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, which talks about Christ humbling himself, so forth, um, taking on the form of a servant and being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, you know, and his exaltation. Many believe that that was, because it's poetic in form, an early creed. And, of course, we have the old Roman creed, Apostles' Creed, and this is what the community of faith would get together and recite together to remind themselves this is what the Bible teaches. And those three things, more than anything else, helped hold the church together during this time of vulnerability, pressure from the outside, um, and uh, compromise, or at least the threat of compromise on the inside. Those three things. Any questions at this point? We're going pretty good, actually. If, if, am I going way too fast? No. Are, are you following? I'm trying to big picture stuff. Again, toddler, or no, 18-year-old, out of the house, uh, hub is gone. What's going to get you through all of this? And it is the truth of Scripture. It is the church leadership that steers people back to the Scripture and is the use of, of the ancient creeds to help God's people on an ordinary level who couldn't read or write know the truth. Okay. Now this part's going to... You think, with all that going on, the church continued to grow. 
Ordinary people, Christians, and, and I don't want to give you the impression that the bishops made the church because they didn't. They just helped steer God's people and protect and preserve them. It was the ordinary people who lived their lives uh, simply in faith in Jesus, were willing to, to follow him, were loyal to him, and were willing to live out their gospel lives and, and, and speak about Jesus. It was the ordinary living of Christians that caused the church and being willing to suffer for their faith that caused the church to expand. So here's a picture of the church at AD 112. I don't know if, let's see if I can highlight a couple things because it's hard to see. Nope, I screwed it up. If you can see, I don't know if you can see the legend over there, but um, the light yellow is the light spread of Christianity. The, the medium yellow is uh, medium spread of Christianity and heavy is the heavy spread of Christianity. Main cities are those dark spots. So you have a, a strong church in Rome, Strong church in Antioch, Ephesus, Edessa, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. So those were like centers of Christianity um, by, the, by the time, um, by the year 112. And then all the little purple dots are the smaller cities where there, was Christ, there were Christian churches. So that's at the year 112. This is by... Um, sorry, I didn't move... better. This is by the year 250, and you can see that um, the darker yellow is already starting to permeate those areas, and a lot of this is along the Mediterranean rim. But now we have a Christian church all the way up in Britain, up into Germany. Um, It's over in Spain, North Africa, um, Eastern Turkey. That's just by, after Jesus, let's see, that's just, what, 200 years And this is by the end of um, 406. You can see deep Christianity taking over. It's, it's basically, this is, the, this, is the, um, this is the entire Roman Empire. It's, it's taken over. And this doesn't, really, um, this doesn't really show some of the other uh, mission things that happen. Like the tradition has it that Thomas, the apostle Thomas, went into India and planted a church in southern India. Um, this doesn't account for some of those um, more remote mission trips, if you will. But what I want you to notice is that the most vulnerable place when the church is on pressure on top and uh, facing pressures from within, um, that it is growing. It is deepening, it is expanding, and not at the point of a sword or a spear. So, that's, I got through that faster than I thought. That's the kind of the picture of the church in the first three centuries. Now, before I tell you some of my reflections, do you have any on on this? And again, we went over this really quickly, but I wanted to leave at least 10, 15 minutes for a time to talk about what does this say to us? God's in control. Can't take down his church. And that's, I don't know if you heard what she said, but she said um, um, significant growth came out of times of great hardship and suffering. And that that's proven true too. It's the church in China right now is quite large and it's in a context of oppression. And yet in times of prosperity, not so much always. Other reflections on this, what you heard? Or, or, or if you need some clarification on any point. Yeah, because really the like the, the anchor point or the the hub of the wheel, not really Jerusalem. It's the scriptures themselves and Christ. Um, yeah, without them, there's I don't think there's any way they could have not been compromised and gone in a thousand different directions. It kind of, it kind of 
and the importance of training those guys to be true to the, to study yourself to be approved, right? Um, by dividing the word of truth. Well, you might, if you have other reflections as I go through, I just have four, then um, raise your hand or just speak out. I opened with a picture of a beast and a, and a harlot. And, and yet, I think these first three centuries show that no matter what you throw at God's church, um, the lamb that is Christ working by his spirit through his word in his church conquers. Persecution couldn't stop it and heresy couldn't subvert it because God is in charge of his church. And so I think that ought to give us confidence. Another reflection Again, the veracity of the scriptures from early on. Part of what I wanted to come out of, especially this particular session, is for you to realize that, that popular mythology as to who created the Bible and who created the divinity of Jesus does not stand in any way, shape, or form on any historical footing. This is, you can read the documents for yourself. They're out there online and... Um, they're public domain, so you can read them for yourself. So it should encourage you with regards to the scripture itself, the New Testament, and the importance of it. Um, also coming out of the sobering inspiration of those who loved Christ more than life. And the question for us in a time of, you know, where we are losing political influence and, um, and our faith is becoming more and more um, socially um, despised. And you know this to be true, especially in the Bay Area and in California. Are, are, like, are we ready for that kind of, like, love Christ and take what you will, but I love Christ and I want to stand with my church family that existed for three centuries and made the ultimate sacrifice. Are, are we ready for that? Because they're, they, they, they're examples. And my last one is this is, the church grew with no political influence. They didn't have a political party. They didn't have a Christian president. Um, if there were Christian senators, they were on the down low. They had no lobbyists. They had no legal groups to represent them. And yet they grew and they grew and they grew. And the reason I, I just point that out is because even if we have no political influence or and you, you know that we live in a time where Christianity is losing its influence, that's okay. It's, it's not political influence that won the day in the first three centuries and it's not going to be political influence that wins the day in the 21st, 22nd, 23rd century. And just to realize this is God's church and um, our most important mandate is to be Christian and to follow Christ, love Christ, trust in Christ, um, live, live out Christ as simply and as honestly as we can, and when given opportunity, speak of our Christ and let him do the work of expansion. That encourages me. When you feel like you're going to be discouraged by modern political change, just remember, early church didn't have any of that stuff, and they were fine. Not only fine, but they thrived. That's my, my final uh, reflection. Is there anything anybody else would like to say after this first session? Was it enlightening for anybody? Was it encouraging for anybody? Thank or, you. I'm just, I, I, you know, I'm hoping it helps because otherwise you wasted an hour and I wasted an hour. <laughs> Any other thoughts before we uh, conclude? I'm just glad you came. I, I'm glad you have an interest As imperfect as they are. Yes, exactly. You know, and, it's, and it's our job to follow in their footsteps, to read the word, to know the word, and stand up for the word. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, that's it. I think one of the good realizations was the fact that every other major religion in the world, both during Roman times and now, have kind of a center, they have a geographical center where Christianity 
was robbed of that early, which I, in 2020 hindsight is more of a blessing than a curse. So it's it's just amazing to kind of just take that aspect and just look at it and go, wow. Right. And that's, by the way, one of the things that makes Christianity so dangerous because it isn't tied to a ge- geographical location. Um, it's centered on a savior king, and, um, and it can exist in any language. Like, there's still, um, you know, I don't want to offend anybody who's, um, well, just, you know, there's, there's a really strong resistance for the Quran to be translated into any other language than, the, than, than, than Arabic. Like, it has to be in Arabic. Now, I know there's English translations, but some of the most conservatives say, absolutely not. It has to be read in Arabic. Our, our Christian New Testament, they decided, you know, we're not writing this Hebrew. We're writing this in Greek. Like, and God did an amazing work of, through, and again, his work, through, uh, uh, oh, come on. The Hellenizer. Um, Greek guy took over the world and died at 32. Alexander the Great. He caused the, you know, the, the Greek culture to go all over the place. And with that, the Greek language. And, and it's like God said, hey, I, I, am, I am giving the world a language that everybody can understand. And so when they wrote, they didn't write in Hebrew. They wrote in the language. And then the cool thing is that it was translated into Latin. It was translated into, you know, later German and all kinds of... It's like we don't have an issue with that. Because it's not centered on a language. It's not centered on a geographical location it's centered on the person of Jesus and, uh, and his word. So anyway, it's just, it, that's, again, what makes it dangerous because it can go anywhere. So. Thanks for your time. And um, we will be here next week, but not the week after for those who can make it. And if you can't make it and you would like a digital copy of what I put, um, I'll try and leave the words in to the blanks <laughs> if you're not here. Um, but that, that concludes tonight, and we'll see you possibly next week. Okay? All right.